The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I've been asked to give a <coughs> guided meditation tonight. And so if you have a meditation method you already like, stick with that. And if you'd like to try this, um, you're welcome to try it. Close your eyes and think thoughts of goodwill. Goodwill is a wish for happiness, your true happiness and the true happiness of others, with the emphasis on the true. True happiness has to come from within. It comes from your actions, your own words, your deeds, your thoughts. comes from resources that you develop inside. That's why we're meditating, is to develop those resources. Which means that your true happiness doesn't conflict with the true happiness of anyone else. Because in developing these resources, you don't have to take anything away from anyone else. It's not like the pleasures of the world where one person gains something and someone else will have to lose it. This is something where we work on our inner resources, each of us. And so there's no conflict. So when you wish for your own true happiness, there's nothing selfish about the thought. So think that thought for a minute. May I be truly happy. May I understand the causes for true happiness and act on them to the point where I receive the results. then spread the same thought to others. Start with people who are close to your heart, your family, your very close friends. May they find true happiness too. And then spread that thought out in ever-widening circles, people you know well and like. People you like even though you don't know them so well. People you're more neutral about. And people you don't like. Remember, the world will be a much better place if everyone could find true happiness within. And you don't gain anything by wishing ill on anybody. Think thoughts of goodwill to people you don't even know. not just people, living beings of all kinds, east, west, north, 
south, above and below, out to infinity. May we all find true happiness in our hearts. Now bring your attention to the breath. Take a couple of good, long, deep, in and out breaths. and Notice where you feel the breathing process, the energy that goes to the body as you breathe in and breathe out. When we talk about breath or breath energy, that's what we mean. The air coming in and out of the nostrils is one thing, but the movement of the energy is what you're really interested in. If long breathing feels good, keep it up. If it doesn't, you can change. Shorter breathing, more shallow, faster, slower, heavier, lighter. Try adjusting the breath in different ways and see what feels best for the body right now. Or you can just pose that question in the mind each time you breathe in. What kind of breathing would feel good now? And see how the body responds. mind wanders off following a thought, just drop the thought and come back to the breath. If it wanders off again, bring it back again. Ten times, a hundred times, don't give in. Just keep coming back, coming back. Each time you come back, reward yourself with an especially nice breath. Something feels really good as it comes in and goes out. You might ask yourself, which parts of the body feel starved of breath energy right now, and allow them to have a share. Because the movement of energy in the body isn't confined just to the torso. You can feel it in any part of the body. simply that it's stronger in some parts than others.
If you're feeling tense, think of the breath relaxing you. If you're feeling tired, think of it giving you energy. Once the breath becomes comfortable, the next step is to be aware of the whole body as you breathe in and breathe out. And it's good to build up to that section by section. Start down around the navel. Just locate that part of the body in your awareness and watch it for a while as you breathe in and breathe out. See what rhythm of breathing feels good there. If you notice any tension or tightness in that part of the body, allow it to relax. If there's any sense of blockage in that part of the body, think of it dissolving away. So no new tension builds up as you breathe in and you're not holding on to any as you breathe out. your attention up to the solar plexus, the area right in front of the stomach, and follow the same steps there. In other words, one, locate that part of the body in your awareness. Two, watch it for a while as you breathe in, breathe out to see what rhythm of breathing feels good there. And three, if there's any sense of tension or tightness in that part of the body, allow it to relax. you want, you can think of breath energy entering the body right there so you don't have to pull it from anywhere else. So it feels immediately nourished as soon as you start breathing in. Move your attention up to the middle of the chest and follow the same steps there. 
Now bring your attention up to the base of the throat and follow the same steps there. Now bring your attention to the middle of the head. As you focus here, try not to put too much pressure on the nerves of the head because they tend to be overworked. As you breathe in, think of breath energy coming in not only through the nose but also through the eyes and the ears. In from the back of the neck, down from the top of the head. Reaching deep into the head and dissolving away any patterns of tension you may feel around the eyes, in the forehead, in the jaws. And gradually dissolving those patterns of tension away. With any parts in the head that seem to be unnourished by the breath, think of the breath going deep in there. There's no room in your head for any thinking, just breath energy refreshing the head. like a camera whose lens is a focal point that's actually in the lens itself.
Now bring your attention to the back of the neck, right at the base of the skull. As you breathe in, think of breath energy coming in there and going down through the shoulders and the arms out to the tips of the fingers. And as you breathe out, think of it radiating out from all those parts of the body into the air. And as you become more sensitive to these parts of the body, try to notice which side may be holding more attention than the other side. And compare shoulders, compare elbows, compare wrists, hands. And if you sense that there's more tension on one side than the other, allow the tense side to relax. And to stay relaxed all the way through the in-breath, all the way through the out. Keeping your attention focused on the back of the neck, this time as you breathe in, think of the breath energy going down both sides of the spine. Both sides of the spine down to the tailbone. And as you breathe out, think of it radiating out from the entire spine into the air. Get more sensitive to the back, try to notice if you're holding more tension in the left side than on the right side. Or more tension on the right than on the left. Whichever side is holding more tension, allow that to relax. And see if you can keep it relaxed all the way through the in-breath, all the way through the out.
and move your attention to the tailbone. As you breathe in, think of the breath energy coming in there, going down through the hips, the legs, the ankles, the feet, out to the tips of the toes. And as you breathe, breathe out, think of it radiating out from those parts of the body into the air. And as you become more sensitive to these parts of the body, again, check to see if one side is holding more attention than the other, say in the hips or the thighs, calves, ankles, feet. Wherever you sense that, try to relax it and allow it to stay relaxed all the way through the in-breath, all the way through the out. That completes one cycle in the survey of the body. If you'd like, you can go through the body again, starting at the navel and going up the front. Do this as many times as you like at whatever pace you like until you're ready to settle down. And then choose any one spot that seemed most congenial, where the breath is most comfortable or it's easiest to stay focused. Allow your awareness to settle there, and then from that spot to spread out and fill the entire body. So you're aware of the whole body as you breathe in, breathe out. And think of the breath filling the whole body as you breathe in, breathe out. Your awareness will have a tendency to shrink, especially on the out-breath. 
So remind yourself, each time you breathe in, whole body. Each time you breathe out, whole body. And allow the breath to find whatever rhythm feels best. That's all you have to do, just try to maintain this sense of centered but broad awareness. It's healing for the body, healing for the mind. And because it's all around, it provides a really good foundation for insight to arise. In areas where you ordinarily wouldn't look. If, as you're trying to be aware of the whole body, your awareness is beginning to blur, go back to the survey, part by part, until you feel ready to try whole body awareness again.
Before you leave meditation, think thoughts of goodwill once more. Think of whatever sense of peace or well-being you've felt for the past hour, past forty-five minutes. Dedicate it to others, either specific people you know are suffering right now or all living beings in all directions. What the ties call our companions in birth, aging, illness, and death. May we all find peace and well-being in our hearts. And before the bell rings, take a little time to reflect on the meditation. When did the mind seem most centered? Most solid, at ease. What did you do leading up to that? Where were you focused? What was the quality of the breath? If you can call that to mind, then try to recreate that the next time you meditate. It may work, it may not work, but as you continue with this exercise, you find that it turns the meditation into a skill as you get more and more sensitive and more and more able to re recall these things. concept that we don't think about much, but the Buddha said was an important part of a teacher's responsibility, which is to provide protection for the student. Now when he's saying this, he's not talking about, you know, setting up a stop sign and stopping the cars as you cross the road. His protection has more been giving guidance on how to make proper choices in, in areas where it's difficult to make choices. Um, 
the fact that he could would see that this was an important thing has a couple of shows a couple of assumptions right there. One that choices are real; that you really you really do have some power to make choices in your life to make a difference. And secondly, that something that someone 2,500 years ago noticed about the power of human choice um, would be relevant today. In other words, there are patterns to human behavior that are hold constant over time. And it's in precisely these patterns that he would like to offer guidance. Um, when he gave his first sermon, he right view on it was the t- first topic that he taught. And that was, the, that was basically his way of giving guidance. Um, when you're thinking about choices that you're making in your life, the first thing you think about, well, what are your priorities? Where do you want to go? What do you think is really important in your life? Secondly, once you've got your priorities straight, what is the framework that you use in order to decide what's relevant and what's not relevant to that particular guideline? And then finally, third, once you have that framework in mind, what does it tell you about what you should do in a particular set of circumstances? Um, The issue of priorities, I think I've mentioned to you before, uh, is something we in America tend to have a lot of trouble with. And it's precisely because we have so many demands made on our time, so many people are very insistent about that we buy what they're selling or that we accept what they're, they're trying to tell us. Um, but the Buddha wants you to be very clear. You know, there are certain things that really are important in your life, and you have to be willing to give up other issues if you really want to get this issue really well. I have a friend years back who was a, <coughs> she was a professor at a university back east, and she's also a novelist. And every time she writes a novel, you know, she's invited out to the alumni clubs of her university to read passages from the novel. And her last novel, she had an incident that she chose, which was about a young woman whose mother has died. And the father has promised that he's not going to marry anybody else. This is set in China, 18th century. And sure enough, he goes on a government trip and comes back with a new wife, a courtesan from down south. And the girl is really upset that her father's done this. But the, the courtesan is a really good woman, and she decides she wants to be a good mother to the girl. And so one evening they're playing chess, and she's telling the daughter, if you really want to be happy in life, you have to decide there's one thing you want more than anything else. And you have to be willing to sacrifice everything else for that one thing. And the daughter's kind of listening and not listening. You know how daughters are. Um, and, but she's beginning to notice that her stepmother's a very sloppy chess player. Losing a piece here, losing a piece there, just leaving herself wide open. And so this daughter gets, starts getting more aggressive in her chess game. Of course, this is a trap. <laughs> the mother wins, checkmate. And what she did is she illustrated the principle that she was trying to show. Are you willing to give up your pawns and your bishops and some of your rooks, but you get checkmate at the end. And my friend read this to two or three alumni clubs and had to stop. Nobody liked the message. Everyone wants to win at chess and keep all their pawns. You know? um, so, so, so it's good to think about. You know, the, the Buddha did have a set of priorities. When he's talking about the Four Noble Truths, he's talking about suffering. This is the priority. This is the big, big issue in life that he's recommending that you take very seriously. And he says it's something that's kind of pressed on us as it is, where we tend to be bewildered by the suffering that we meet with in our lives. And we're looking for help outside, and he's there to offer the help. Now, the framework he gives, as I said, is the Four Noble Truths, because um, these give guidance in what to do. He divides your experience into four things that you want to look for. You can think of this as kind of a checklist. Um, there have been articles recently in The New Yorker about how they've discovered in hospitals that you know, if you give a checklist to people in the emergency room, they're a lot more effective. 
And you have to think of your life as kind of an emergency room. There are dangers out there. You can make really unskillful choices. People can give you all sorts of wrong ideas about what's important in life and how to live. And you, you yourself can cook up a few. Um, and so it's good to have a checklist for, you know, when you read, meet, up, meet up with a difficult situation, how do you handle the situation in such a way that you're not going to continue creating more suffering for yourself and for the people around you? That's what the Four Noble Truths are about. The first Noble Truth, the truth of stress or suffering. The word, the Pali word dukkha can mean everything from out-and-out suffering to very subtle levels of stress. I tend to like to translate this as stress for several reasons. Um, one is I had a friend back in Bangkok, he was a reporter, and he asked me one time, why do Buddhists talk about suffering all the time? It's so pessimistic. Now, I don't have any suffering in my life. And I said, do you have any stress? Oh yes, lots and lots of stress. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about. Um, secondly, it's really hard to romanticize stress. It's very easy to romanticize your suffering and to think about the nobility of your suffering. And the Buddha's basically saying, you know, no, it ain't noble. You know, there's a lot of stress that you're just causing yourself and it's totally unnecessary. And then he goes to talk about what is the stress. And he gives a lot of examples. Birth, aging, illness, death. Being separated from what you like, having to live with what you don't like, not getting what you want, all of which is very familiar. And then he turns the tables on you and puts something very unfamiliar. He talks about clinging to the five aggregates. And so it's, interest, it's important to understand why he focuses here, because he's boiling all of your suffering down to this particular activity that the mind does. And the word clinging can also mean feeding. It's basically look at the way you feed on your life, physically, emotionally. What kind of food do you eat? How do you eat your food? How you deal with emotional issues? What are you feeding on in terms of your activities? And these aggregates are your body, a form, a form of any kind. Feelings, which are feeling tones, pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. Perceptions, which are the labels you put on things. You know, ceiling, light, wall, these kinds of things. Of course, ceiling, light, and walls are not that, that difficult perceptions, but there are a lot of other perceptions that we really hold on to very tight, and that can cause a lot of trouble if you hold on to them at the wrong time in the wrong place. Then there's what's called fabrication, which is your mind's intentional activity to put things together. We don't just stop with perceptions of things, we create stories around them. And then from the stories we can begin to suffer quite a bit. You know, they used to have Amatadatu up on the wall over there, somebody covered it up. You can, you can make a real story about why did they do this? Are they trying to hide the fact of Amatadama? <laughs> you can create all kinds of suffering around just little things like that. The way you put things together. And then there's finally consciousness, which is your awareness of things. That's your, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And the way we cling to these things, we feed off them. In fact, these five activities, you may wonder, well, why did the Buddha divide up your mental activities in, in these ways? Lots of other ways you could divide up mental activities. But if you think about how you actually feed off a of physical food, this is the set of activities that's involved. You've got your form of your body, you've got the form of the food out there. Um, and the question is, how are you going to get the food out there in here? Because you've got a problem with pain. There's the pain of hunger. And there's a pleasure you know when the hunger has been assuaged. That's what drives you to feed to begin with. Then there are your perceptions. Again, perceiving what is my hunger? What do I really desire? There's a great passage in Member of the Wedding by Carson McCullers. Do you know the book? She's playing a riff on that scene in 
I think it's notes from a gov- uh, underground. When the underground man is complaining, he feels like he's uh, caught out in a sandstorm with skin. His skin has been stripped off, and he's just being bombarded by sand. That's the existential angst that he fears, feels. That's the Russian version. In Carson McCullers, it's the American version. It's a young girl who's going through a problem and she's growing up and it's difficult. And she says, I feel like I've been out in a sandstorm and I'm stripped of my skin. What I need is a good ice cream cone. <laughs> so that's one perception of what was going to assuage your hunger. Um, but you think about when you're a little child, this is a lot of how you explore the world. What's good to eat, what's not good to eat. You put a kid in a room and it's going to wander around, it's going to put everything in the room into its mouth at one point or another to figure, find out what's, what it can eat and what it cannot. So you have the perception of what your hunger is and what's going to assuage your hunger. And then there's fabrication. What are you going to do to get the food you want? Suppose you get a potato. You can't eat the potato raw, but there are other things you can do with a potato to get that potato into your body. That's what fabrication is all about, figuring out how I'm going to get the pleasure I want based on what's given to me. And then there's consciousness. And as the Buddha said, we tend to define ourselves by what we feed on. You look at personal ads. They're all about the things, the pleasures you like to feed on, the kind of food you like, the kind of pleasures you like. And it's because of this that we suffer. That's what he's saying. Now, this is a pretty radical message that he's giving us. You look at the way that you feed on things, the, the things that you like, you're actually suffering around them. So he's going to be giving you a radical cure. He's going to, he says, the end of suffering is when the mind reaches a point where it doesn't need to feed. Which is hard for us to get our minds around, but he says it is possible. It's something that's transcendent, it's something that doesn't require any conditions at all. Now to get there, you have to understand what's causing the suffering, the fact that there could be an end, and then what you do in order to put it to an end. What's causing the suffering, he says, is a particular kind of craving he calls the craving that leads to becoming. Now, this is a technical term. Becoming basically is your sense of who you are in a particular world of experience. Now, right now, okay, you're here in this room, but who are you in this room? The, the, who you are right now depends on what your desires are right now. Now, you might be thinking, okay, when this talk is over, I'm going to go down the road, get some ice cream. <laughs> okay. You're not totally here. The world that's relevant to you is, includes the ice cream store down the road. Um, when you go home, you may decide that you want to watch something on the TV, or suddenly the TV becomes a relevant part of your world. And you change your identity in line with these, th- these desires. You may be reading a book, and at that point your body is irrelevant and you're totally in the book. It's just you and the book. You're the reader absorbing this message. Then all of a sudden you have to go to the bathroom. Suddenly the body becomes relevant. The bathroom becomes relevant. So your sense of where you are and the sense of who you are changes as you go through the day. Now there are certain cravings that are worse than others that cause a lot more suffering. But this is basically the process. We have a desire and all of a sudden we create an identity around that. In other words, who's going to benefit from... Who, well, who's suffering from the desire right now? Who's going to benefit from assuaging the desire? And what capabilities do you have in order to satisfy that desire? These are the things we identify with. Um, the example I often give is that, um, as I say, alcoholics go into a house and they know pretty quickly where the liquor is kept in the house. That's a relevant part of their world. Um, um, chocoholics know where the chocolate is kept. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
you think about this, and your sense of your identity begins to dissolve, and you realize you change your identity based on your desire. Okay, what are your desires? Which desires are worth having, which are not? Because the Buddha doesn't condemn all desires. In order to get to something unconditioned, you can't use the unconditioned as a means. You have to use conditioned phenomena, which will involve learning how to feed in a new way. You might call the Four Noble Truths the Buddha's feeding instructions. Instead of feeding off the five aggregates in a way that causes suffering, he says, learn how to feed off them in a way that creates a path to the end of suffering. And that's what the Noble Eightfold Path is all about, particularly in the practice of concentration. You look at it, you've got the body sitting here breathing, that's form. You've got the feeling of pleasure that comes from being with that form in a proper way, attending to the breath in a proper way. There's the perception that holds you to the breath, how you perceive the breathing in your body. You find that that makes a huge difference. If you think of the breath simply as air coming in and out of the lungs, it's like you've got this bellows here that has to pull it in, push it out. It's not all that pleasant. You think of the breath as an energy that suffuses the body that can come into the pores. It changes your relationship to the breath. And that's what keeps you concentrated. Finally, there's fabrication as you adjust the breath, adjust how you're focusing on the breath, how you deal with distractions as they come up to get yourself back to the breath. And then finally, there's the awareness, consciousness, which is the awareness of all this. What the Buddha is basically doing is giving you new food. The sense of well-being that comes from concentration, you find, gives you a lot of energy, gives you a sense of nourishment. And you're going to need this, because it come, when you come down to the Four Noble Truths, it doesn't stop just by identifying what the truths are. There are duties that go with each. The duty with regard to suffering and stress is to comprehend it. Now, to comprehend it requires you sit with it for a while to see what's going on. What exactly is the suffering here? What's the stress? What's weighing you down? Because the Buddha distinguishes between physical pain, which he says is not as nearly as bad as mental pain, and what are you doing that's causing the mental pain? Now, it may sound like he's blaming you for your mental pain, but what he's actually doing is saying, you can change things so you don't have to suffer. So you're trying to comprehend what is the suffering here? Secondly, if you can see the suffering, the question is, okay, what's the craving that's causing it? Abandon that. Let go of it. And again, to abandon your old ways of feeding, you need a new way of feeding, which is to develop the path so that you can realize the end of suffering. So when you're sitting and meditating, it's not just a matter of watching things come and go. There are things that you want to learn how to comprehend, things you want to learn how to abandon, things you want to learn how to develop particularly the mindfulness, concentration, virtue, discernment, all the qualities that go into the path. So there are duties that are associated with each of these four truths. In fact, instead of thinking of them as truths about something, they're categories for looking at your experience so you know how to handle something when it comes up. So when you come to a difficult situation, you, you can't figure out how to deal with it. You say, at the very least, let's handle this situation in a way that causes the least amount of suffering. You back up. Okay, where is the suffering right now? What is the particular desire that's causing that suffering? Can I drop that desire? It's useful to be able to have this, the skill of the path. For instance, the skills of concentration, learning how to breathe in a proper way, how to relate to your body in a proper way, so that you have a sense of nourishment, so that the, the taste of the desire is not so, is not so um, tempting. In other words, the Buddha is giving you better food. I'll give you a story from Thailand. Um, there was a princess one time who <coughs> fell in love with this prince. Now she didn't know where he came from, and it turned out this prince was not really a prince, it was a dog. 
but the dog had had a friend who was, had died and been reborn as a deva and took pity on him. So I said, look, you're miserable as a dog, I'm going to make you a prince. So all of a sudden, bang, he's a prince. This is quite like the you know, princess and the frog. And, um, and so she takes him home. And of course the parents say, well, prince of what? Where? You know, who's this? They say, I don't care, this is the one I want. And so the, the parents finally give in, they get married. Well, it turns out he's still, you know, he's still a dog. And so she comes into the bathroom one day and finds him eating shit out of the toilet. <laughs> and she realizes this is not a prince, you know. And <laughs> drives him out of the palace. So. so you have to be careful about your feeding habits, you know. <laughs> what the Buddha's giving you is a new way to feed, a new way to feed off the aggregates. And this is his advice, this is his protection, because if you feed off them in the wrong way, you can cause yourself a lot of suffering. My teacher tells a story about when he was a young meditator. He had these splitting headaches, and he tried everything to deal with the headaches, and nothing was working. He was tried Chinese medicine, Thai medicine, Western medicine, nothing was working. And it got to the point where his, the pain was so bad that they actually had a couple monks sleeping in his room to look after him at night if he woke up and he was really in, in severe pain. Well, one night he woke up, sat up, and looked around, and of course the monks were supposed to be looking after him when they were asleep. And he was thinking, well, I mean, who's looking after whom here? And that's why he sat for a while, and he said, wait a minute. Here I've all along, I've been trying to get rid of this pain, get rid of the suffering. That's, suffering is not something to get rid of, it's something to comprehend. I've been doing the wrong duty. And he said that was the insight that really got him on the path was realizing, okay, there is something the Buddha recommends. He's, okay, he's not leaving you adrift. He's giving you recommendations precisely what to do. There's another story that's very similar. There was a famous monk named Jokun Na, who was a meditating monk who lived in Bangkok. and He was doing walking meditation outside of his hut one night, and this young monk came to him and said, I don't know what to do. I've just been worrying and worrying and worrying for the past three days about what's going to happen to my family um, without me. And Jokun Na looked at him and says, well, you're performing the wrong duty. Went back into his hut. Unfortunately, the, the younger monk was able to understand what he said. Okay, you are, instead of abandoning the cause of your suffering, you're developing it. In other words, you're focusing on the craving that's leading to more suffering. You've got to learn how to develop the qualities that allow you to look at that craving in a way that allows you to let it go. So it's these duties that are related to the Four Noble Truths, these are really important. In fact, you probably know that the Buddha's first sermon is called the, the Dharma Wheel. And the reason it's called the Dharma Wheel is because back in those days when you enumerated different variables against one another, they didn't call it a table, they called it a wheel. Like we have tables and books, you know, they have two columns and three or four rows or whatever. And in this case it was four columns, four noble truths, and then there were three levels of knowledge. First level of knowledge is to know what is this truth. Secondly, What's the duty with regard to this truth? What should I be doing with regard to it? And finally, awakening is when you realize you have completed the duty. And the Buddha said once he had got this complete, this was his awakening. So he got four noble truths, three levels of knowledge, four times three is twelve. This is why the proper Dharma wheel should have twelve spokes. That's, that's what the original Dharma wheel was. And when the Buddha is talking about right view, he actually has several levels that he's talking about. The first level is what's called mundane right view, which is pr principally about the, the power of action. Your actions really do lead to results. They lead to results not only now, but also in the future lives. And there are people who actually know this. This is a good working hypothesis to take. 
Because otherwise people will say, well, maybe my actions don't have any consequences. A lot of us like to live in certain parts of our life, keeping them as karma-free zones. <laughs> Where what I do here is not going to have consequences. But those remind you, it has consequences all across the board. You've got to be careful. One. And then secondly, some people say the issue of rebirth is irrelevant to the practice, but it, it keeps you really, really scrupulous about all the little things that come into your mind. You know, suppose you happen to die in the next two or three minutes, and you've got this you know, bizarre fixation in your mind. That could take you in a really bad place. Do you, want, do you want that? And so this keeps you scrupulous and on top of your mind at all times. That's what's called the level of mundane right view, i.e. a working hypothesis, which gives you the framework for then applying the Four Noble Truths, which is what's called transcendent right view. But it doesn't stop with transcendent right view, it goes beyond. There's, what, there's, a, there's a passage where the Buddha is talking about a higher level of right view where everything conditioned you see as to be abandoned. Now this, this level comes only when the path has done its duty. And to use an image that the Buddha has, you've got the raft and you're taking it across the river, okay, you've reached the other side, all you need to do now is just let go of the raft and you're on the other side. So that's a third level of right view, in which you've, even, you've, even the conditioned food of concentration is not good enough, you go for something better and you reach the other side. And then finally there's the level what they call the, the Arahant who has reached the other side as free of all attachment to views. And they say you can't even describe that person's path at all. Okay, so there are four levels. Now you have to ask, ask which level am I on right now? Because a lot of us want to jump to those last levels. Just work. I just let go and everything is okay. I don't need views. I don't want to be attached to views. Um, relevant to this weekend, it's a very romantic notion that I'm no longer attached to views, because that way you're a better artist. You know? But you're not an artist when you're looking at problems of suffering. You're a person with, you're a flesh and bone person, flesh and blood person, and you've got suffering, you've got to deal with it. So, so you've got to be careful about this temptation to want to go straight to the end without having done the work that gets you across that. Um, the Buddha himself says that, and there's a text called the Atagavaga where he talks about how you can't define the goal in terms of views or precepts or practices, but you can't get there without the proper views or precepts or practices. So it's not that what they're, we're trying to train in not having views, we're actually training and learning how to use the proper views. The views we're letting go of are views that are totally irrelevant to the issue of suffering. The Buddha was many times asked questions about, is the world eternal? Is the world not eternal? Is your soul the same as the body, or is your soul some, something else? Is the, is the cosmos infinite? Is the cosmos finite? These were the big you know, issues back in India. And the Buddha would always say, I don't discuss those. And people got really upset. It's like asking somebody now, are you a Republican or a Democrat? And he's like, I don't, I don't discuss that. No. <laughs> and people feel you're being irresponsible, you know. Well, back in those days, the Buddha, they thought the Buddha was being irresponsible, but by not talking about whether the world was eternal or what. And you, 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 there are a lot of religions out there that make that the big issue. And the Buddha says it's irrelevant. So you learn how to let go of those views. And also learn the views about how you define yourself. You know, who are you? The Buddha says, don't bother. I mean, for the Romantics, that was the big question, who are you? And the Buddha said, hey, don't ask, it's a, it's, it's a waste of time. 
you've probably heard the story of the man shot by the arrow. The doctor comes and then he says, I'm, you know, wait a minute, don't pull the arrow out until I know who shot the arrow, what the arrow was made out of, what kind of feathers it was made of, what kind of bird, um, what kind of wood. And as the Buddha said, you would die first. Get the arrow out, and then we can talk about these other questions if you're really interested. And usually after the arrow is out, you're not interested in that kind of stuff to begin with. So what the Buddha is teaching here, there are things that you do let go of, but there are certain views that you have to hold on to. And this is his, the protection that he offers. Because if you go around without any views, you become susceptible to just anything that comes into your mind. I've talked to a couple of people who feel they don't have any views, and you ask them, well, why don't you have any views? And they'll explain. <laughs> and what, often, what it often means is that you tend to be surrounded by people who have the same views you do, and you're not really conscious of them. But it's good to examine your views, because then you begin to realize, do I really believe this? And you begin to try to get some sort of order into your views, so you can ask yourself, Am I sticking on a path, or am I just kind of wandering around with my life? And it's the kind of protection that the Buddha is trying to give you, is to provide you with a path, some views you can't hold on to. Sometimes you hear the idea that, well, each moment is a unique moment, and it requires kind of a unique response. That's from the I Ching. That's not from the Buddha. The Buddha is saying, if you really do want to put an end to suffering, and he's not forcing you, He's not saying you've got to do this, but if you want to put an end to suffering, this is what you've got to do. You've got to hold this in mind. Because this framework is going to be useful everywhere. Whatever the problem is that comes up. Where is the suffering? What's causing it? How to comprehend the suffering, how to let go of the cause, how to develop the path, i.e. qualities in your mind and in your actions and in your words that will lead to the realization of the end of suffering. That's the kind of protection he's offering you. When they're telling you not to have any views, they're not offering you protection. They're actually depriving you of the protection you need. So this is how the Buddha was a responsible teacher. He gave a set of guidelines. He never taught bare awareness. He taught appropriate awareness, i.e. looking at things in terms of the Four Noble Truths and their duties. And that, he said, is, is, is his gift. It's the protection that he offers as a teacher. So those are my thoughts for the evening. Any questions? Any views? <laughs> yes. Tom Jeffkin, the guided meditation. Um, uh, you said, uh, I think you said, uh, go ahead and try breathing mm -hmm. in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's different from the instructions I've always heard, which is um, that uh, just be aware of your breath, but don't try to change it. Uh, if you're aware of it, if you can really focus on it, it'll change. Get more calm and shallow on its own. But, but um, uh, could you talk just a little bit about maybe the benefit of choosing to breathe in certain ways? Okay, um, playing with your breath. The Buddha talks about fabrication. And breath is one form of fabrication. And when you're dealing with unskillful fabrications, sometimes watching them with equanimity will work, and sometimes it doesn't work. If you've got someone going through a panic attack, you just say, look at your breath, be with your breath as it is, it gets worse. And it doesn't have to be at the extremity of a panic attack. It can be, you're sitting here and you're miserable, 
You say, well, at the very least I can breathe in a comfortable way. And you, what that does, it makes you begin to realize that you are actually fabricating your breath in ways that you didn't know. And this is a really good way of getting insight into the breathing process and also how you're fabricating your experience unconsciously. Because that's so much of what the practice is about, is seeing, seeing the fact that you're doing things that you didn't realize you were doing. And one way is just to sit there and watch, and the other way is to say, well, how, how about if I consciously change something here? And you realize that you have the power to change. And so we're taking advantage of that so you can get the mind into a really good, strong state of concentration, because you need the food of concentration. And this not only just panic attacks, addictions, any other kind of issue that's going to come up. As the Buddha said, you, know, you may know the drawbacks of a particular state of mind or a particular way of thinking or a particular addiction, but if you don't have any pleasure to replace the pleasure you're getting from that, you're not going to let it go. You're going to go back and feed off the shit in the toilet, you know. So you've got to get better food. And so this is what the breath is offering. You're sitting here, you're breathing, might as well take advantage of the fact you're fabricating it anyhow, fabricate it well. It also, as you get more sensitive to the breath energies in the body, it's, it helps you notice when, you know, an unskillful thought's coming in, even in a very subtle way, because you feel a change in the breath. And that alerts you, okay? And then one of your, one of your tools for working against that unskillful thought is to say, I'm going to go back and breathe in a really comfortable way and it's going to look a lot less appealing. Yes? Get the mic over there. One of the things that happens is, uh, like, just maybe going to like drowsiness. It's not really drowsiness, but like even today, uh, mm -hmm. I know the times when my thoughts were going out, and I brought it back. I know the times I was feeling comfortable, but at the end of it, I didn't know whether I had actually kind of dozed off for a little bit in between. I mean, mm -hmm. I just don't have that knowledge. Uh, even at other times when I uh, try meditation, that's a problem that happens that I'm not aware that I've even that you've wandered maybe off. dozed off. Yeah. An important thing is to, when, you're, when the breath is comfortable, you've got to expand your awareness to fill the whole body and make yourself doubly, doubly aware. I'm staying here with the whole body, whole body, whole body. Because if you have that sense of whole body awareness, you won't drift off. But if the awareness is allowed to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, it's gone. Well, this is how we fall asleep. So this is, as soon as this breath starts getting comfortable, that's why the Buddha said immediately, the next step is whole body awareness. That's a way of being kind of keeping you here in the present moment. Thank you. So it's, there's work to be done. It's, it's not just resting. You've got to keep that work going to keep that full, larger aware, a range of awareness active. I had one quick follow-up. Is it okay then to move the body at that point? Move it a little bit, yeah. Not enough to you know, disturb the people around you. Yeah. Thank you. Question. Hi. Um, I thought I know the Four Noble Truths, but the Four Feeding Truths mm -hmm. 
deeper perspective, kind of interesting. And it's prompting this question of, uh, um, you know, from the desire and the clinging, and here uh, the feeding concept, mm -hmm. that there is a level of basic need for feeding, mm -hmm. and, and there's the, the desire, you know, to feed better and get stronger and mm -hmm. do more. Mm -hmm. So that's where the trick is, that I'm wondering if, there, where is that line that gets crossed into more than one of those necessary? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is one of the reasons why the, the monastics have a reflection every day on how much, why you're eating your food, why are you wearing clothing, why are you using shelter, why are you using medicine? They give you an idea, okay, when you cross the line, that you're getting obsessed. And for food, it's basically just to keep the body alive to minimize the pain of hunger, and you have, give you the strength to practice. I, you don't have to go to five-star restaurants. <laughs> right, but, but the question is beyond the, the feeding, uh, the, the physical, the body thing. Yeah. Is, is more the emotional need. The emotional... Okay, then the Buddha's offering, okay, um, there are a lot of things that we feed off on other people that are harmful both for ourselves and for the people around us. This is why it's good to have that sense of well-being that comes from the concentration. So you can recognize, okay, I'm feeding in an unnecessary way. It's causing unnecessary suffering. Maybe I can drop that. And, you know, if you have children, to what extent are you feeding off of your children? To what extent is it, you know, nourishing for them? And to what extent is it becoming oppressive to them? And vice versa. If you have a little, an, an alternative source of food, you can see this a lot more clearly. There's no easy answer, but it's, <laughs> that's a beginning here. If I um, identify um, another person causing me a lot of stress, first mm -hmm. um, is to comprehend it, and then if I cannot resolve the issue, or if um, I have to see this person um, every day and the stress is mm -hmm. um, ongoing, mm -hmm. uh, how do I deal with that? We're talking about your boss? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. You say the person is causing you stress, and the question is, what do you want out of that person? Because that's what's causing you the stress. Well, I, I cannot provide what, what they want. Mm -hmm. It's just I, and I can't really see any kind of resolution, like solution as to their satisfaction. Okay, you have to, at that point, you have to decide, okay, what, how much can I actually provide? And tell yourself, okay, this is all I can do. And the fact that they're unhappy, you, can't, you have to learn how to live with that and not get, and not feed off of that, off of the desire to try to make that person happy, because it sounds like, you know, they're probably being unreasonable. And this is how unreasonable people, you know, rule the world. <laughs> By making you want to please them. And say, so, okay, I have to live with the fact maybe I'm not going to please this person and maybe I might have to lose a job. But there are other jobs out there. This is Silicon Valley, after all. I mean, this, this, the Bay Area is, they have more jobs, okay? But you have to say, 
I can't let my self-worth be determined by that person's unreasonable demands. That takes a certain inner strength. And to identify, because the reason I'm suffering, the reason I'm internalizing the stress is because I do want to please that person in a way that's more than I can actually do. So I'll be happy to give what I can and then draw the line there. So one view that I'm holding these days um, that I'm finding helpful is to see the path as the retraining of perception. Um, we're taught to have perceptions of solidity and identity and other things, mm-hmm. and they get replaced by the perceptions of anicca, dukkha, anatta, and conditionality. So I'm looking for, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the food um, mm-hmm. framework, and I'm looking for a link between them. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, maybe the food for perception needs to change so that it doesn't uh, rely on the sense of a self or can you, can you draw a link there? Okay, we have to learn how to use these perceptions selectively. Um, because if you're going to be learn how to perceive things that you used to feed off on and learn how to see that they're not really worthwhile. This, this is why it requires good strong concentration to apply these perceptions so they don't become disorienting. Because if you don't have an alternative place to go, then you, you're, you're, you're without ground. And no matter what they say in the romantics, it's not good to be in a groundless place. You have to be very, very grounded in order to peel yourself away from your other temptations. So say, okay, this for the time being, I'm going to see my concentration as con- as constant as as possible and as pleasant as possible. And this is mine, okay. And then you'd say everything else beyond this, I'm willing to take apart. But I've got this good solid place right here. And then once that's when that job is done, okay, then you can start turning in on this. But don't. I mean, it's when you look at it when you when you're trying to get the mind still, you're actually going against those three characteristics or those three perceptions. You're trying to make it constant, pleasant, under your control, and that's an important part of the path. Say, so, okay, everybody knows it's in constant stress from that self. Okay, done that. Let's go. That's not the way it happens. You've got to get this as solid as possible, so you can look at everything else and not get disoriented by the by the, applying those perceptions there. And also, you're learning exactly how far can I push this. And John Mahabhu has a great passage. He says, "Try to prove the Buddha wrong, <laughs> yeah. and you'll run up against the limits of concentration at some point. But see how far you can run with it." Okay, well, thank you for your attention. <laughs>